Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, Alessandro Maniscalco and I share our analysis of the DC films that make up the Justice League universe. Sorry yet again for the delay. It's completely my fault, just with work being very busy this semester, and I had a four-day conference last weekend. But next semester should be back to normal. And anyway, in this episode, we are going to continue our analysis of Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayer. And first, we can give an update on its incredible box office performance, which has now closed. Back in February, I made box office predictions for all the comic book movies this year, and I gave what I thought was a very optimistic prediction for Suicide Squad. I said that it would pull in $700 million worldwide. Then, in August, when I saw the bad reviews coming out, I thought there was no way that it would actually hit that $700 million that I predicted. But not only did it hit $700 million, but it is now sitting at more than $745 million worldwide, $325 million domestic on a budget of $175 million. That's amazing, especially considering it doesn't even include a China release. And they have also timed things out nicely where the Blu-ray and DVD release will happen in December, so they should get a big dose of holiday sales too. And the digital release of Suicide Squad is happening right now, so our next few episodes are going to be focused on Suicide Squad as we are able to dig back into it in detail. In our last Suicide Squad episode, we covered the military briefing with Enchantress, and now we will take a look at Waller's visit to Belrev because she just received the approval to form her task force. This scene opens with Waller and Flag flying in and Griggs welcoming them, saying welcome to Belrev's special security barracks. He pays primary attention to Flag, but Flag tells him that Waller is really the person in charge. This is one of several instances where we see the sexism that Amanda Waller has to face in her line of work. And of course there were probably many more instances of sexism that happened as she was rising to this position of power. This is also a setup for the scene later when Deadshot lists his demands, and Deadshot is keenly aware of Waller being the one in charge, whereas Griggs was oblivious to that here at the beginning. Another reason I like this opening interaction is that Griggs actually does start kissing up to Waller without missing a beat. Overall, I really thought Griggs brought a good energy and humor to the Belrev scenes, and I'm wondering if he might be used a bit more in the back half of the movie when we see the extended cut. Waller gets straight to business and wants to see her Task Force X recruits. She goes first to Harley's special caged cell. We've already been introduced to Harley and seen some of her interactions in this setting, so that familiarity allows us to focus now on her stare-down with Waller. There's a great three-dimensional use of space here as Waller is walking and looking down from the catwalk. Harley asks, Are you the devil? We don't know if Harley is asking this in jest or in earnest, but Waller answers it pretty seriously. Maybe. Waller knows that she has done bad things in the past and will do bad things again in the future. Part of her power and the reason she has gotten to her current position is because Waller has developed comfort with moral gray areas, or even immoral acts. But she does them because she has to or because she has convinced herself that it's necessary. And this willingness to justify and carry out evil might be what makes someone the devil. Maybe. Or it could also be because of her position over the members of the Suicide Squad. She's about to tempt them into morally questionable acts. If Waller is sort of like the devil, then this whole scene is about the squad members considering making their own deals with the devil. It's interesting to note that although Waller has done bad things, she isn't viewed by the general public as a monster, and those in power haven't locked her in a cage. 
But throughout the movie, the squad will come to see Waller's evil nature, and the squad will also come to see the humanity and goodness in one another. Next up is Croc. Flag is there to see him, and Croc comes up to the cell door, growling and coming out of the shadows. He says to Flag, ain't you scared? This confirms Waller's introduction to Croc, which established the beginning of Croc's character arc. He has been treated like a monster, and so became a monster. And here with Flag, Croc just assumes that people should be afraid of him because he is a monster. Yes, Croc looks like a freak, and has done some terrible things in the past, but he hasn't done anything to Flag personally, yet Croc still expects Flag's initial reaction to be one of repulsion or fear. Flag, to his credit, does not show fear or disgust. He just asks Croc, why'd they put you down here? He is actually opening up a little line of communication between himself and Croc, and Flag is subtly suggesting that maybe Croc doesn't deserve to be treated worse than the other criminals. Croc responds, I asked. So Croc wants the solitude and the sewery environment. He probably hasn't been able to have much social interaction, so he prefers the solitude. And he has internalized the world's treatment of him, which is kind of sad when you think about it, but it's also something that happens a lot in real life. People treat someone who has committed a crime as a criminal, as if that crime is the thing that now defines them. Or people pick on others for one reason or another, maybe calling them fat, stupid, or ugly. And the really sad part is when those people getting picked on actually start to believe the words of the bullies. This idea applies to a few of the Suicide Squad members, I think, and the story and their mission together gives them a way to break out from this mindset, at least with one another on the squad. And by the way, I thought the makeup job and the eyelids were really good on Croc in this movie. His growls and voice sounded really good in theaters, too. I hope that they translate okay to the home media systems. Next is El Diablo, and speaking of bullies and insults, Griggs approaches Diablo and calls out, Essay, hola amigo, and put that burrito down. He seems to have completely stereotyped Chato Santana. We get the first of a couple scenes with tablet computers showing footage through a doorway or window, and this time it's Waller confronting Diablo with his fire attack in prison. Diablo says that it isn't him, even though it's clearly him on the video, but Diablo clarifies that that guy is gone, he's dead. This is a foreshadowing of Diablo's ultimate fate at the end of the movie. It also shows that Diablo is rejecting his past, and he is clinging to his human side rather than the demonic powers that are a part of himself. And Diablo denying himself and denying his past is something that he's going to have to get over before the end of the movie. The bar scene later will help with that story element quite a bit. Flag talks to him and tries to entice him by describing his possible freedom, but Flag misses the mark when he says that maybe Diablo could get out and have a woman. As we learn later, Diablo already had a love, and that is exactly what is causing his grief and guilt, so he is not looking out to get out to meet a new woman. Diablo declines the offer because he already knows that Waller and Flag are here to try to use his powers for their own ends. Diablo says he's a man, not a weapon. This sets up his particular character arc, and we get yet another foreshadowing because he says he's going to die in peace before he raises his fist again. Yes, Diablo is going to die in peace, but ironically, it is through raising his fists that he gains his peace. He gets to save a foster family as a way to redeem himself for killing his real family. 
Now, some people have said that Diablo calling the squad his family at the end of the movie wasn't really earned. These critics say that the squad and Diablo didn't have a deep family bond yet, just through the events of this movie. On one level, I can see where this criticism is coming from. The movie gave us some hints of the bonds forming, but it didn't fully establish a full family relationship amongst the team, or at least not with Diablo specifically, because Deadshot and Harley were the main characters. But on another level, I think it still works for Diablo's character arc, because this is someone with a good heart, who has done a few really bad things. He's trying to find a way to redeem himself. And so, at the end of the movie, there's an opportunity to use his powers to save some people. Are they really like a family to him? No, but they do provide him with a chance to feel like he is redeeming himself. So he sees that opportunity, and in the intensity of the moment, he perhaps makes a bit more of it than it actually is. But good for him, I say. Now, we don't see Boomerang in this scene, but we started the sequence with Harley, and so we end it with the other main character, Deadshot. By putting him at the end, we can have an extended scene with him and Flag and Waller. They bring Deadshot into a shooting range, and then take off his handcuffs. I love the comedic timing and the performance when Deadshot immediately points the gun at Griggs. This is followed up by Griggs's line about clearing his browser history, which got a big laugh when I saw this opening night. I'm guessing a lot of people identify with that sentiment. But there was also a quick connection back to the first scene with Deadshot. Because here Deadshot says, what's for dinner? Taunting Griggs. So we think maybe Deadshot is about to make good on that earlier threat that he had in the previous scene with Griggs. This scene here also has a nice build-up because Griggs first alludes to, quote, what this man can do, unquote and Flag repeats the idea that Deadshot never misses a shot, piquing our interest about Deadshot's full capabilities. And then, of course, the main point of the scene is that we get to see the full skill set of Deadshot, and we get to see the fact that he is versatile with several different weapons. As Doc said on Man of Steel Answers, Deadshot is so accurate that it is basically a superpower. After his performance, Deadshot immediately goes into business mode, negotiating for his services. He wants custody of his daughter, he gets a dig in at his ex-wife's boyfriend Darnell, and there's some good chemistry in the scene between Deadshot and Flag, between Will Smith and Joel Kinnaman. And also there's some good humor about white people in the college grades. At the end, Flag says that Deadshot isn't in position to make demands, but Deadshot knows that he is in a strong bargaining position, and he puts down Flag, saying, No, Aaron Boy, I'm talking to your boss, indicating Waller. He ends with another little bit of sexism, though. That's my price, sweetie. Overall, this scene accomplished several things in a short amount of time. We got some humor, some light action. We got to know Deadshot's personality as bold, confident, with high levels of awareness. And we saw him start his interactions with Flag, and those interactions will continue throughout the movie as they size each other up. We also saw that Deadshot does not seem to be inherently evil. He doesn't kill Griggs, for example, and he doesn't kill the others around him, even though he probably could have. And Waller actually seemed less concerned about murder than Deadshot was in this scene, so that's giving us another clue here that Waller is maybe more of the villain than Deadshot is. Also, to Deadshot's credit, he makes demands more for his daughter than for himself. It seems to be the case that he has killed more for business than for any sort of personal pleasure or gratification in it. So that's still bad, of course, but it's not evil. Deadshot here we see is not irredeemable. 
Having met the members of Task Force X a couple of times now, the next scene gives us Rick Flagg's closed-door reaction to the squad. He starts by calling them criminals and psychotic freaks. He says it makes no sense and that he could assemble a much better team of trained soldiers. If you listen to the Man of Steel Answers episode on Suicide Squad, that podcast gives a good explanation of how it's pretty ridiculous that critics of this movie tried to say that it was an illogical premise to have a squad of criminals, because soldiers would be better able to complete any of the squad's potential missions. But this critique is silly, because they literally bring up and then address that point in the movie itself. Flagg takes the same position as these critics, and he says to Waller's face that soldiers would be preferable. And this idea was also at play when Waller had to make her pitch to the Security Council. The point is not, can we get soldiers to do these missions and be better behaved than the squad? The point is that Waller recognizes a whole new arena of warfare with metahumans, and she wants to be ahead of the enemy on this front. And it's also about tapping into new resources beyond the soldiers that already exist. Getting soldiers to do missions is nothing new, but having soldiers and also having new conscriptions in the form of criminals, and especially metahuman criminals, is something very new, and it's something Waller wants to test out. Waller makes both of these points. She calls it World War III, alluding to the new frontier of a metahuman arms race, And she says that desperate times call for some unusual team-ups, such as the U.S. military and the Mafia, in the past. Flagg tries to play hardball with Waller, saying that he might make a call to some of his friends in authority. But Waller isn't phased. She reminds Flagg that she has June Moon, and so she has leverage over Flagg. Her rationale for the squad didn't win Flagg over, and rather than trying to convince him by reason, she just relies on her bread and butter personal leverage, and manipulation. This sets up the times later in the movie when Flagg will side with and feel connection more to the squad than to Waller. Seeing her ruthlessness, Flagg says, They warned me about you. My dumbass didn't believe the stories. Waller waits a beat and then says, Nobody does. Great lines and great deliveries. Again, we are getting some great setup of Waller as an intriguing character and perhaps as the true villain of the movie. We wonder what those stories were about Waller, and we wonder what she's going to do over the course of this movie and if she will be creating some new stories that people won't be able to believe either. The last thing we'll cover in this episode is a quick scene away from Belrev. We see the Joker in mourning over his lost Harley. And Johnny Frost comes in to tell him that people are getting marked as terrorists and sent to Belrev in Louisiana, and that's where Harley is. Joker says to bring the car around, we're going for a drive. He then lays down in what the filmmakers call the knife circle, although there's a lot more to it than just knives. The camera pulls up in an amazing visual shot and the music swells with the Joker laugh mixed into the music. This is definitely one of the memorable images from the movie overall, and it's definitely one of the most memorable images of the Joker subplot. It is a very efficient way to clue us in to the Joker's madness and his meticulousness. As I've said in our Batman v Superman analysis, every movie needs some really compelling visual images that will stick around forever in people's memories and be associated with that particular movie. I think the knife circle is one such image for Suicide Squad. For the knife circle scene, David Ayer said that he went in early to the set that day and dressed the room himself. 
he personally laid out all of those items, which included the knives, the piano keys, a bunch of laptops open around the outside, and also, creepily, a baby's onesie. Ayer said that it was a bit crazy and disturbing to make the knife circle, and he didn't want others to have to do it. So that's our analysis for this episode. We are definitely looking forward to the home release and the extra few minutes of footage for Suicide Squad. To finish out this episode, we wanted to just say a bit about the composition of the squad. In the Behind the Scenes book, producer Chuck Roven said that David Ayer started by selecting the characters he wanted for the movie. He picked and cleared those characters first before he wrote the full script. So that leads us to thinking about why these particular squad members were the ones Ayer chose. And it also opens the door for critiques or personal preferences. For example, if you think some other squad members would have worked better for the film. If you have thoughts on the squad members, please let us know at our Twitter handle, JLU Podcast, or by commenting on this episode. Right now, we're just going to do a quick rundown of what each character brought to the movie, and so maybe this is some of what Ayer was thinking when he formed his roster. Deadshot and Harley Quinn are clearly the leads. They give a nice male-female balance, and yet we don't have to deal with any cliched sexual tension, because Harley is totally into the Joker, and Deadshot's only real love is his daughter. Both are motivated by these loves for people who are not on the squad, and people they are hoping to eventually be reunited with. The two characters contrast nicely in that Deadshot is a very mentally stable person, whereas Harley is a bit psychotic and unpredictable. Deadshot treats violence dispassionately as business, whereas Harley seems to enjoy violence or do it almost like a game. Deadshot brings a nice dynamic to the military side of things because he has superior skills to the military, but not the soldier's official designation of service. And Harley brings a nice contrast to Deadshot and the military both because she dresses and acts in ways that are totally different than military standards would dictate. I'm sure Ayer also went with Harley because of the character's growing popularity, and with Deadshot because he is a pretty common staple to the squad. Rick Flagg was an obvious choice, even though he hasn't always been on the squad. He's back on the squad now in the DC Rebirth Suicide Squad title, um, and of course he was the leader in the classic Ostrander run in the 80s. I think the interplay between Flagg and Deadshot was a central part of Ayer's original conception, and it worked well in the film. I think it also made sense to have a military leader who had to be in the awkward position between Waller and the rest of the squad, because that allows us as the audience to put ourselves in that middle position and judge Waller's actions and conscience, or lack thereof, as compared to the squads. This movie is also incredibly diverse in its character makeup, and that seems to have been totally purposeful on the part of Ayer and the studio. And the diversity, I think everyone can agree now, was a big asset in terms of the film's success. But with regard to that diversity, Flag is there as the only American white male on the squad. And him being in the position of power is sort of emblematic of the man in the dominant position over women and people of color. Speaking of which, the modern interpretation of El Diablo was a good choice as a Latino character. And he represents a lot of heart for the team. He brings a very personal and tragic story element, and he also grapples explicitly with not wanting to use his powers for violence, contrasting with Harley and Boomerang, for example, who are pretty willing to be violent. Diablo was also a good choice because he brings a much greater power level than the others, and this was necessary because of the power level of the threat that they were facing. Killer Croc brings a different kind of heart to the team, 
a lovable monster of few words, who also is a cannibal. His silhouette is unique, and so he adds bulk and texture to the physical lineup. His water capabilities are also a nice complement to the skills of the rest of the team. And the movie maybe could have had the water element of Croc pay off even more, but there was just enough of it to make it worthwhile. You could say that King Shark might have filled the same water role as Croc and changing the, the texture and silhouette of the team, but I think Croc is the more realistic of the two characters to try to bring into a fairly grounded world that the Justice League universe is setting up. Croc also expands the Justice League universe a bit because he's the first deformed human to show up. And then along with Diablo and Enchantress, they were the first ones with a mystical sort of power. Captain Boomerang is obviously included as a solid dose of comic relief, and he also brings a straight-up criminal element to the team. He's more of a burglar and a backstabber rather than a psychotic murderer, so he brings a nice mix. Boomerang is also a common member of the squad in the comic books, so he's a safe choice, and he is also quite a bit easier and less expensive to bring to life cinematically than others such as Black Manta or Bronze Tiger would have been. Slipknot is thrown in as the red shirt, so to speak. He is there to show that the threat to the squad members is real, and Ayer said that they didn't want to waste any time trying to trick the audience into thinking that he was anything more than this. I think that was a wise and very efficient decision. And it was good to see a Native American character in the universe, so the one downside here is just that it happened to be the Native American who was killed so quickly. But even without Slipknot, the team was pretty full, so I think it was basically either that we get a small dose of Slipknot or we wouldn't have gotten him at all. Katana is the last member of the squad proper. She hops in right as the team is taking off, and she brings a bit more diversity as an obvious Asian character and as another woman on the team. She probably has even fewer lines than Croc, but they do work in a nice backstory for her. She adds a nice mix to the moral dimensions of the team because she has done some questionable things in the past, but she is not a criminal or a villain like the others. She had a clear motive that is pretty understandable to most of us. She also shows clear loyalty and dedication in her responsibilities, and those are traits that we usually ascribe to heroes rather than villains. So she kind of walks that boundary between the two, probably falling more on the hero side than the villain side overall. Now, Amanda Waller, of course, it goes without saying that Ayer was going to include her. It's not Suicide Squad without Amanda Waller. But we also have, outside the squad, Enchantress as the primary villain, and the Joker as the B-story character. I think both of these were very good choices, but I think the execution of the Enchantress was a little bit off. The Joker I really liked all the way through, from interpretation to execution and everything else. He was necessary to fill in the Harley character, and I liked it that they kept him secondary to Harley rather than overtaking her, which could have happened if they weren't careful because of the stature of Joker as a character. I also thought that they used the Joker well as a way to throw wrinkles and rising action into the squad's primary mission. But as for Enchantress, I think the choice of villain was pretty good because the magical elements made it something obviously beyond the purview of standard military operations, and so it's a logical chance for Waller to try out her disposable Task Force X, and it also provides a legitimate threat that would challenge even a team of villains and supervillains. Ayer also seemed to be inspired quite a bit by the Nightshade Odyssey storyline, which is in Volume 2 of the Ostrander run on Suicide Squad. That story probably gave him the idea of having the Incubus and his sister, and to have the sister be connected to June Moon. So that homage to the comics is appreciated, 
but I'm not sure that Cara Delevingne was the best choice for actress, and some of the design choices were not quite to my tastes, but more on that when we get to it in later episodes. So anyway, that was Ayer's roster. Again, if you have thoughts on these choices, or if you have thoughts on alternatives, let us know. And one more thing for you guys and gals, it seemed to me that the number 23 showed up a lot in Suicide Squad. This is based on just my viewings in the theaters. I swear that I was seeing 23 quite a few times. Does it mean anything significant, or am I just imagining it? Maybe with the digital edition coming out now, people can help me figure this out. If you have any thoughts on the number 23, any thoughts whatsoever, even if it's just to say that you think it's gibberish, tweet your thoughts to us at JLU Podcast on Twitter, and you will be entered to win a free DC trade paperback. Barnes & Noble is doing a buy-to-get-one-free sale on graphic novels right now, so we're going to take advantage of that deal from Barnes & Noble, and we're going to give away one or two of them to our listeners. So thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the Suicide Squadcast and Man of Steel Answers for more DC podcast entertainment.